Welcome to New Human Living Radio Show, bringing you powerful interviews to awaken the power in you. Learn more at newhumanliving.com. And now your host, Les Jensen. So, do you remember taking a test in school? Sitting at your desk with the test in front of you, the teacher's up in front of the class, the whole class is scratching their head taking the test. Imagine that not just some tests, imagine that the test, the test of all tests, the mother of all tests. This is like the graduation of all that is, the big kahuna of tests. And you're sitting there and you're you're slugging through the questions and one of the students gets up and says, I'm done, I'm done, walks up the front of the class and hands in his test and the teacher's like, by golly, you got 100%. And the student turns around and you go, Jesus Christ. And it's it's Jesus. He passed the test and he he mastered the art of embodying divinity, healing the sick, raising the dead, all the miracles he did. Well, imagine the rest of the students falling to the floor and worshiping him because he was the first one to complete the test. I don't think he had that in mind. And well, he told us flat out, come on, you're going to do all this crap too. Come on, come on, keep going. But what happened? Imagine the next four or five students that score in the high 80s or 90s are asked to wait in the hall, and then the church takes them out to the, the town square and burns them at the stake for healing people, burns them at the stake for showing the traits, healing people, performing um, miracles or magic, however you want to phrase it. It's like the, the church had no intention for their followers to to really, they don't, they don't want you to really follow Jesus's teachings and expect to perform everything he has done. Damn. I mean, damn. It, it makes you scratch your head. I am so excited about tonight's episode. I am so excited. I am. <laughs> the, the topic tonight is the name of our guest, Jan Phillips' book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. But but if if Jesus 2,000 years ago said, come on, y'all, belly up to the bar, wouldn't the the Christian organization have mystic schools, miracle schools, healing schools? Wouldn't there wouldn't they teach alchemy? 
mysticism? I mean, if if Jesus himself said, y'all are going to be doing this too, come on, don't worship me, you're going to end up walking next to me in as a, in, hell, you guys are going to even do more than I've done. You're going to have a flipping internet. You're going to have 3D printing. You're going to have whipping cream in a in a aerosol can we've kind of dropped the ball with the quote savior he was he was never intended to be the one to save our ass he's showing us the way to live to embody everything he has done and more I think we're going to run out of time. I I could talk for a while. I'm going to, let's get to it. Again, the topic tonight is the name of our guest, Jan Phillips' latest book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. Over the years, Jan created a life of love, service, community, and prayer. She she evolved her understanding of God and came to see herself and all of us as the light of the world. Had I not been born gay, my heart would not have been broken in half. Wow, that's a sentence right there. Would not have been opened itself to love supreme would not have been tenderized by life's bitter pounding. Jan's quest has taken her into and out of a religious convent across the country on a Honda motorcycle and around the world on a one-woman peace pilgrimage. Born gay, she became a social activist in response to the homophobia she felt as a young girl. She entered the covenant at the age of 18 because it was her sixth grade nun who saved her from suicide. Jan is the author of 11 award-winning books and a thought leader who connects the dots between spiritual intelligence, evolutionary creativity, and social transformation. She has taught in over 25 countries and has published work in many notable publications. You can learn more about Jan Phillips at janphillips.com. Join me in welcoming Jan to the show. Jan, welcome to the show tonight. Thank you so much for inviting me and for that terrific summation, which is so authentic (laughs) and right from your heart. What a wonderful job. (laughs) Well, this isn't my first rodeo, but my new boots might throw you off. Well, I just appreciate that you didn't read what somebody sent you, that you you came up with a description based on how the work impacted you. That was so dear. I I always try to speak from my heart. Yeah. Life's too effing short i mean get to the point or shut up i mean i, I yep. we're, we're, we're we got a tangent going here but <laughs> i mean 
I mean, your your and I backgrounds are similar. I um, I was born in a staunch Mormon household, and and I've I see a lot of parallels between Catholicism and Mormonism, and uh, mm-hmm. I know my soul chose the Mormon dynamic, so I would challenge every damn thing I was ever told because for me Mormonism felt like the twilight zone. Um, everybody I talked to had the same answer. I could ask the the butcher, the policeman, the school teacher, the bus driver, and they all had the same flipping answer. And it's like, do you, any of you have your own opinion or do you just parrot this stuff? So, um, yeah. why don't you share with your audience uh, a, uh, a look at how your your life went, kind of the the ten thousand foot view of what brought you to where you are today. Well, you said it in a nutshell, so I'll tell it in a couple stories. Sure. Um, I was suicidal once I reached puberty and realized I was gay because nobody like queers, nobody likes lesbians and all those terrible names we had for people like me and including God primarily God in the Catholic Church was very homophobic so I was just going to kill myself at 12 and it was my 6th grade sister who recognized that I was smart and good-looking and athletic and strong and sturdy, and why am I walking with my head down all the time? So she started a campaign called Positive Reinforcement on me and affirmed everything that I did, constantly gave me compliments on all of my capacities and abilities and caused me really to transform from a sick little killer into a beautiful butterfly. And with my 12-year-old mind, I concluded that if none save kids' lives like she saved mine, that's what I wanted to do. And I had to wait six years from age 12 to age 18, and I went into the convent. But the problem was, I was still gay. And because we're in training for vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, we're not supposed to be having any relationships that they refer to as carnal or sensual or that had any feelings at all. And, of course, biologically at the age of 18, 19, and 20, we're rip-roaring hungry (laughs) <laughs> or, you know, intimacy. Right. And and I was. I was hungry for intimacy. I I was not I was not emotionally mature enough to be horny for sex, but I was hungry for affection. And that was even too much for my superiors. You know, I never so I get kicked out after two years because they know I have kissed a nun. 
they know I have kissed two novices, and that's what it took to get thrown out of the convent. So here I'm, 20 years old. It was my only plan. I didn't have a plan B. And it cost me 20 years of turbulence to get over the fact that missed from the convent. Long, long journey. I, I finally came out, thanks to the gay pride movement after Stonewall, and found a community of, of brave and wondrous and creative people to identify with and build community with and celebrate with. So um, it was, when you said earlier it was homophobia that drove me to activism, it was. It was a, a college um, professor. I took a course at a junior college in making, you know, automated slideshows. This was prior to PowerPoint and prior to computers. So big class, and the last day of class, everybody showed their, you know, presentations, 160 slides put to music, automated, et cetera. Mine was on the women's movement. It was called Woman to Woman. And there's tons of pictures of lesbians in there, but there's nothing pornographic. There's nothing, you know, terrible. It's just you you see a bunch of women carrying lesbian signs at a gay pride parade, but you also see my mom and you also see little toddlers. It was just all images of women put to this beautiful song. And he chastised me at the end and told me I would be lucky if I even passed that class. And some of the students shunned me. And that was the day I went to the other professor of human sexuality class, because I knew he brought in people from the community to talk. And I said, I have to talk to your class about being a lesbian, what it feels like to be so mistreated by, you know, a professor and students just for showing slides of my friends. So he let me come in and talk. And that was day one of my life as an activist, which has gone on for Oh, 55, 60 years now. <laughs> well, I'm not well, one there, bit tired. There's, uh, there's something that happens in that um, when we connect with our feelings, when we connect with that um, passionate impulse, when we connect with that... Um, uh, innate internal desire, and and yet so many alive. yeah, but so many people feel threatened about that. What do you um, what do you think the the motivation to treat it like such a taboo element? We're all hardwired for that if we would actually pay attention to it. Well, I think the convent of all places where you have only girls, only young women. For one thing, that was a fear. And the other thing is we're in training for a vow of chastity. And that was, I think it was mistakenly presented to us as, therefore, you're never going to love anyone in all your life. Therefore, you're never going to have, well, sex. And therefore, you're never going to have any intimate relationships. But those things ought to be divided up because everybody ought to have intimate relationships. 
I'm not saying everybody has to have sex because if somebody chooses to be a celibate, that's their business. But, you know, how they define so rigidly the vow of chastity was partly the problem. Because I don't think there's anything, I mean, we're created to, just like the animals, we're created for pleasure. We're created to have our desires sought after and met and and celebrated. And we're we're created for procreation and co-creation and recreation. And it's just ridiculous to think there's any virtue in resisting that. I mean, mystics, I don't think it's a requirement of a mystic to live without passion. I think it's a requirement of every hurdle and have the highest passion and experience, the ecstatic experience of oneness, not with a physical being so much as with the great invisible mind at large. But let's just redefine mysticism for a minute, which maybe for some of the listeners, they you know, that word sends people back into the Middle Ages. Right. But a mystic is just a person who's, who, who, who has an unmediated relationship with divinity. They don't have to call the rabbi or the imam or the priest or minister to dial it up. You know, you just wake up, you light your candles, and you go there on your own. You maintain and sustain that relationship, and that's what causes you to have and be a soul force in the world. That intimate relationship that you have with your invisible dance partner is the magic ingredient, if you ask me. And that causes one to be a mystic first, and then a prophetic being second. You dare to talk about what comes from that mystical union. Nice. Well said. Well, to me it seems like, um, I don't know, the metaphorical journey home or whatever the the path to enlightenment or salvation or whatever the hell you want to call it is to re to reintegrate every place that you have have separated yourself in the past the the mystic has um an openness to all that is in other words, you're not going to be a mystic by by um, adding judgment, adding posturing, adding, you know, um, those kind of traits to your psyche. It, and it's just the opposite. It's like to see the the sacredness in the mundane, to see the, I mean, we were talking before the show started about um, some of the challenges of our past and in hindsight, to look at them, there was great gifts in those challenges. You know, there's a mystic from Germany, Meister Eckhart. He's a pretty famous German mystic. And he he said that the process of enlightenment or the process of finding God 
is a process of subtraction, not addition. And I think what he, by that, is we come into this world already fully divine, already You know, if you talk about energy, energy is either a waveform or a particle form. And when it's a waveform, I think of it as that God that people speak of. And when it's a particle form, I think of it as matter. That humans are the particle form of the great divine waveform energy. Two different substances one singular essence. So we're the part of God that you can see. And Terre de Chardin, who was busy, busy working in the 40s and 50s, always, he was a Jesuit priest, but he was banished and sent to Siberia and China and desolate places. (laughs) He was a paleontologist. So spoke about the processes being twofold. One is the divinization of matter and two is the materialization of the divine. And we're either in one form or the other. And so all matter is fully divinized. Everything that exists came from the primary source. Right. There's nothing out here that's not sacred. You know, and what we people make ridiculous choices with how they use their time and create pornography or or create internet schemes. I mean, I'm not saying everyone's out there being saintly, but what I'm saying is every one of us is a chunk of the light came from the light, we return to the light. But what we make of our lives while we have these, this short little time on earth is in our hands. And so there's a lot of abuse going on right now because people have been misinformed about the possibility a life could be. And I only know from having a spiritual practice for 30 years, that the more I sit in silence in my practice in the morning, the happier I am in the living of the rest of my day. And I think that one is most enlightened when one be when one accepts that things are unfolding perfectly in some way, even though we ourselves have the agency to co-create a a better world. I mean, you look what's happening in Washington tonight. Congress is voting against, you know, voting rights because there's two people withholding their votes. So what's happening with our voting rights in this country is not very enlightened, but that doesn't mean every person in the Senate isn't of God. It it just means this is how free will 
works out. But on some higher level, it's all okay. I mean, I'm not going to, I've been an activist since I was 20, but I am not going to freak out because the world's going awry <laughs> right now. Right, the world's in a yeah. state of turmoil right now, but I'm not losing my center over it. I'm kind of waiting for the the millennials and, and Gen Zers to get something moving quick that we can, you know, align ourselves with and support and cause there to be more thoughtful commitment and moral will among the citizenry of this country. That That's what I'm waiting for. But I'm not freaking out. I'm not saying this is all wrong. I'm just saying this is curious. What a disappointment. Yeah, you know, the... I think it was uh, uh, shit. I, it's either Gandhi or Ernest Holmes that said, uh, "If you can't see God on the next face you see, there's no need to look any further." In other words, the the divinity of of all all of the humans in, anywhere and everywhere on the planet. It's uh, um, we're given such fierce free will to um, go into the shadows or the you know the the incongruency of ourselves, if you will. So, if you were to uh, um, look at the thread of your life, how has um, the unfolding because because to be raised as a young girl in in such a, a tight and constricted environment and then to to over years um kind of come to terms with yourself i don't want to put words in your mouth but um to blossom in 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 understanding who you are so to speak how has that changed your perception of life? Well, I think that the terrible despair and depression I felt after leaving the convent was so severe and traumatic that it led me into the dark woods and down the rabbit hole through what to drugs through alcohol i ended up in jail public intoxication on my birthday it it was a terrible uh experience of 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 sorrow and rage and grief and partly being raised in that kind of constricted family Catholic family thing means don't have your feelings, don't talk about anything real, you know, just go to daily mass, do all your things, don't think about yourself, that's selfish. So I wasn't prepared. I, I didn't, no one ever told me I create my life. No one ever said, figure out what you want, begin to pray about it, talk about it, and then you'll enter into it. So I had to learn it the hard way 
for sure. And I wasn't I wasn't able to see or understand or comprehend why that disastrous thing happened to me. It felt to me like I was a victim of a terrible, terrible injustice. And so, it, as you know from reading the book, it wasn't until I it was 20 years later when I finally sat down with the woman who was the boss of my huge mother house, 400 sisters there, and she, and I asked her if she could help me get my heart fully back where it ought to be because I was just broken apart by that rejection. And I told, and she asked me, she, she said, sure, I'll meet with you. And when we met, I said, okay, let me tell you the story of this girl starting at age 12, ending it right now today. And at the end, I don't want you to interrupt, but you could say anything you want at the end. So I told her the whole story, the whole sad thing, what happened to me after I was kicked out, blah, blah, cried through the whole thing. And at the end, she said to me, would I forgive her for this terrible injustice? And would I forgive the entire community? And the minute she said that to me, there's this overarching awareness in my consciousness, a voice from out of the blue that says nothing to forgive. And it was the first time I ever felt the other side of the story, which is I was blessed and grateful that they allowed me to have two years of a monastic experience in order to get my spiritual underpinnings to meet my spiritual teachers and then release me after two years because everybody knew I am not cut out for vows of obedience, poverty, and chastity. So that was a major upheaval and reckoning for me that really opened me up to so much joy because I could see then how I created that I got myself kicked out. How many times I smoked in the woods, I stole wine from the priest, I was disobedient, I kissed novices, I didn't do my chores right, I talked when I was supposed to be silent. And then I got to see I did all those things which tending me home. And that was kind of the beginning of my life as a person who connects the dots between creativity, spirituality, and social action, more simply said than, than you described. It, it is now true that I'm more focused on evolutionary creativity, spiritual intelligence, and social transformation, but um, it's a little more accessible to bring it down a notch for people because I think we're creating our lives all the time. We're creating the culture with each other, and we're creating the civilization that our descendants are going to inherit, right? Right. There's no God up there who's got the whole world in his hands. Nobody's going to come and save our sorry asses. 
we've got this world in our hands. Right. And that's what I sing now. Well, you know, he's got the whole world in his hands. I don't know if Mormons sang that, but in my family, he's got the whole world. Okay. Um, You know, the, um, there, there's nothing there to forgive what you, what you said there. So imagine listeners to the show, perhaps young listeners that are, that have incarnated into a, a shitstorm, some maybe domestic violence or something really tough to to navigate, yeah. and and you know, um, I was sharing with you before the show about my father. I'm I'm 61, and for 60 years I didn't know about my dad. Um, the vast majority of my life, I didn't know about my dad and the role he played in World War II. And I, I connected with my cousin and he told me all these stories about my dad. And, oh my God, there's nothing to forgive. I, I'm, I'm, I'm astonished he could even show up at all. And, and so it, if there's young listeners or old listeners or anyone who feel like they're getting crushed, they're, you know, that, I mean, you shared being yeah. suicidal at such a young age. For people who feel like the burden is too heavy to carry, what would you say to them? See, when you bring up youngsters dealing with things because we're not really mature enough. Our brain isn't advanced or grown enough to help us process things. But when we get to be thinking for ourselves about our own lives, when we're adults and look back at what happened to us, we should be also aware that it happened through us and it happened for us because we're shaped by disaster. We're, we're, we're molded and shaped like when you think of Michelangelo chiseling away at that, you know, five-ton piece of marble to create that masterpiece. That's what happens to us. We're chiseled away at by pain and sorrow and turbulence and terror and tragedy. And the opportunities for us to know something we couldn't have known without the pain. You know, you can have an orgasm and you don't learn a lot. You feel pleasure and it's great and you yell out and it's all wonderful, but you don't learn a lot from it. But you have a big suffering or you find yourself in grief and you get through it and you live, even if you lose a dog, you lose a kitty, you lose a partner, you live through that, you know something. You know something about life. You can be useful to somebody. So you can't tell a kid that. You can't tell a woman that's got breast cancer that because it's too, they're too vulnerable right now. But the hope is when they live through that trauma, they will come to an awareness that they are who they are because of that trauma. 
you know, I, I talked to a woman in, in Vermont, and she introduced herself as, well, they said to me I would die of cancer five years ago. I said, what did you do? Well, she said, well, because they they said it was imminent and it was going to happen fast, I I decided I'd have to do everything I really wanted to do all my life. So she said, I quit my job. I bought all the CDs I want. I bought all the books I want. I took time for bubble baths, poetry readings. I took dance lessons and painting lessons. And then I was healed. It was so weird. And she says, this, I've lived five years since and my cancer's in remission. Just her mid-course correction, right? Right. So there's a lesson in there, which is don't put off till tomorrow the joy you can have today. Otherwise, it'll make you sick. I don't know, well, literally. But in the Gospel of Thomas, you know, the, the, the Gnostic Gospel of Thomas, he says, what you create in the world will, what you create in the world will save you. And what you fail to create in the world will kill you. Agency you have in the making of your own life, the more joy and passion and purpose you will feel. But if you're an adult, if you're 50 years and older and blaming people, with a sad country western tune, they done me wrong. <laughs> then you're just not getting it. There's no enlightenment there. Read my book is what I say. If you yeah. think someone's oh, yeah. to blame for the mess your life is, read my book. Because I thought that for 20 years, and we got to help each other out. Right. Amen. So how do, how do I get that message out in the world? Well, I guess I better write a memoir. Because I learned from other people's journeys. I learned from your story. You find out that your father, you know, trained thousands of soldiers, 900 of whom died in the Pacific Theater, they call it. You know, and he, that brought, I can't imagine the grief and sorrow that brought to him. His men, they were his men. He was their sergeant, right? And they yeah. all died, and then he becomes a dad, and he becomes a husband who's got rage and confusion and chaos, and he's not a good husband, and he's not a good dad because nobody's helping him process. Oh, nobody's yeah. giving him any help with his trauma. He he so, became like a, a five-year-old boy scared to death, except, yeah. he, except he was a huge man. And when he got mad, he cut you in half with his eyes. And in hindsight, after talking to my cousin just a little while ago, I realized it was the pain in his heart, the pain in his heart, watching the compassion he had for these kids. So he, I'm sure he felt like if he didn't do everything he possibly could, some kid might not go home. And to carry that burden, uh, yeah. I mean, son of a bitch. And, yeah. and so so in hindsight, bring the rage. I mean, let me hug you in your rage instead of, why the hell are you screwing me a new asshole? I mean, it. Um, he never touched us physically, but 
um, he was such a, a hot and cold personality. Anyway, inaccessible. I, yeah, but in hindsight, I have such compassion for him. And but yeah. anyway, um, well, it's a long now, process figuring out why and you know oh, putting yeah. some extra meetings on it. Well, I, mean, I think my my soul chose that dynamic, and see, the thing is, um, so Mormonism was a real big deal in my household, and and when my father, um, uh, how should I say it, becomes overwhelmed with this the spirit of the Lord in him, he made the priests and the pope. Uh, well, in Mormonism, it's bishop and and whatever. He made them look like slackers because he would fill up with such, you know, he, he prayed his ass off in the foxholes going, God, you know, help me get these kids through this. And yeah. and that, that intensity, um, we as his children were invisible to that burning fire of, God, 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 help me yeah. now, and and it all makes. But my soul chose that, so so I would be challenged to um, find my own sense of divinity. Had I been just spoon fed uh, in a docile household with you know pretty flowers on the kitchen table and a happy dog running around the backyard. I wouldn't have learned those lessons. Right. Well, now, how do you uh, um, how do you describe your relationship with the with God, with the divine, with your spiritual wisdom? I mean, how does how does your relationship with God? Um, influence your life now? Well, the first thing I do in the morning after I pour myself a cup of coffee and bring it back to my bed, candles. And then I stay there in my room for about an hour. And what happens is it's very earthy and organic. It's drink the coffee, review the dreams, and then after that's done, say a couple old familiar Catholic prayers that have been reworded so they don't insult my soul. And after that, it's entering into crossing the threshold of awareness into my oneness with all that is. And so I reimagine God every day because the pull is always to think of it as external. But right. in my mind every morning, I imagine God as the air that I'm breathing and the air in my lungs, the air inside every cell. So that it's interior to me. I'm, it's the sea that I'm swimming in. And nice. there's no distance. There's no seeking. I'm not seeking. I'm not crying out, God, God. 
I'm just being with, right? Supreme intelligence. But I have a notion that supreme intelligence fell in love with infinite. And they had a child. And that child is our cosmos. So we're the progeny of those two forces, intelligence and love. And that's what we're made of. That's what we're capable of. And we come from the earth, clay, ash, minerals, chemicals, all of that go into the making of our bodies. And we're made of the heavens. And that portion is contained in our imagination. It's like the chlorophyll to a tree that causes those leaves to be able to turn one thing into another. The tree in photosynthesis through that magic ingredient, ingredient called chlorophyll, can create food out of sunlight. It manufactures, it transforms sunlight and air into into water and food and sugar and proteins for the rest of the tree and the ground beneath it. And I think, and that's nature. That's how it works. And we're nature, and that how that's how we work. We, we even you can make yourself look like a tree, but our magic ingredient that causes us to transform information into inspiration is our imagination and that's our our divinity lives in our imagination not saying it doesn't live in ourselves and everything but it's that piece of us that causes us to know how to make a poem from a feeling or how to take a few chords and make a song on a $50 guitar, right? So we're always converting one thing into another for the benefit of the whole. You know, I don't make CDs. I don't make songs and CDs for the benefit of me, right? I make a thousand at a time and sell them and send them all over the world for the benefit of the whole. Right. That's why I write books. Yeah, I get that. The the impulse to create is so innate to nature expressing itself, and we are uh, that nature. Um, we are. Um, I think the 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 notion of blasphemy is to not express is to, like you were saying, the the gal that had. Um, had been diagnosed with cancer, and she's like, "Well, screw this! I'm going to do whatever the hell I want." And and that's kind of the impulse of of nature, of consciousness to uh, eternally um, express itself in in new and different ways, over and over and over, forever. It it seems. Yeah. I would agree with that. It's just like snowfall. There's no snowflake ever the same. There's infinite snowflakes and not one ever the same. And what 
what I create in the world, you couldn't. And what you create in the world, I couldn't. Because we each know we have our own calling. We're called to do certain work. And when we do it, we're joyful as you can be. Yeah. But I'm really, you know, I'm noticing how much filling up their times now with just so much social media. Instagram, TikTok, all those things. I don't dare, I don't go near them. Right? I haven't even opened up. I don't even know what TikTok is because I already have enough distractions in my life. And if I have more time, I want to spend it in silence or in service. So we choose in all of our choices. It's the colors that we splash on the canvas called our life. And we can't blame anyone else. People go around saying to me, I don't have time, yelling, I don't have time. I go, what do you mean? Time's all you have. You wake up in the morning, you have 24 hours, and then you, you know, then the next day. Time is all we have. And if we're not the bosses of our own time, that's too bad. Just yeah. a lack of imagination. Well, there's, there's just a, I don't know, I guess a, a deeper sense of satisfaction, a deeper sense of fulfillment when you honor that impulse to create. When I first went to write a book, my ego said, hell no, 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 no. And uh, fast forward now, I've written a bunch and uh, it brings me great joy. And I'm so glad I got over the hump, so to speak, of resisting that inner impulse to express itself. Yeah. I think I think people are scared sometimes to think of themselves as creative because they think it means manifesting something that they don't feel capable of, like a book or a CD or a, a poem or something. But I think the most important thing we have to get about creativity is that you're creating your life day by day. Nobody is creating your life but you. We, I think we do have an invisible dance partner, and I often feel that I have about 50% of say in the matter of my life because, you know, the fates are bringing us what they will. But I never blame anyone else for my life being messed up. I got it pretty down now, and it's pretty blissful. Right. Well, the um, we've got about five minutes left. I want to make sure that the audience knows about your books, and uh, uh, you have a Living Kindness Foundation. Can you tell us about that? I think the most important thing for your listeners is to feel like they're part of a community, like they're part of a tribe, common mind. And so the most important thing I want to say is if you feel you're not connected to something that supports you and sustains you, I would say go to my website and get on my newsletter list. Because I take that community 
very seriously. And every Sunday morning, they get a little blast from me. It's a, it's called the Bulletin from Immortality. What, where do you hear this? It's an Emily Dickinson line from one of her poems. And she says, the only news I get is bulletins all day from immortality. Nice. Yeah. It's like she's a satellite dish for immortality, yeah. for supreme intelligence. And I think of us as being satellite dishes for mind at large. And so if partly that's all well and good if you're all by yourself, but there's another part to it that says I need to feel connected with other people that have this understanding and this perception. And so I would just invite your listeners to get on my newsletter list and receive my love in your email box once a week and be part of the community. And, it all, you know, I go around the world traveling to different places and teaching, mostly Canada and the U.S. now. But, you know, I'm... I've been everywhere because I made that peace pilgrimage around the world. But I might be coming to the town where you live and you want to know it. And if you're in my circle, you will know it. And we can meet for a beer and we can have fun. Right? <laughs> That's right. I'm all about all about that. And I just am always being as intimate as I can be, telling the truth, being present, being a deep listener to other people's stories. And I think that's the requirement of this hour. And yes, I do have a a foundation called Living Kindness, which people can just go to the Living Kindness Foundation and and find out what they want to know about that. But most importantly, I think, I just wanted to reach out to your listeners and let them know, connect with me. It's a good idea. Oh, amen. Um, the first time we spoke a few days ago, I um, um, there's such a, I guess I'd say, compassion in your voice, and and uh, it's quite evident to me. Well, um, Jan, do you have any closing thoughts for our audience? It's a good one. Yes. I think if you wonder what to do in these weird times, there's an equation which I'm just beginning to figure out. And one involves your heart's desire and one involves your heart breaking. And so if you ask yourself those two questions, what comes up if you were to say, my heart's desire is this? What is that thing that you're really longing for? That you is it? I want to see those blue icebergs in Alaska. I want to snorkel in Maui. You know, consider what is it that your body and your heart and your mind are aching for? That's one question. And the other is what is the phenomenon that feels most painful to you now? Is it the plastic in the ocean? Is it the burning of the rainforest? emails and somehow 
ask yourself the question, can you put those two things together? Can you do some traveling with the consciousness of social good? You know, there's a hundreds of organizations now that take little cruises, that have, you know, small ships, that are always all about our consciousness, social consciousness. There's, there's huge arenas to step into where you can fulfill your desire and you can help whatever is breaking your heart and know that you're contributing to a better world. That's, that's the next creative move I suggest for anyone who's listening. Lighten up. Talk about what you want, your heart's desire, and do something about that thing that's making you be full of sorrow. Find that the life you're creating ends up having a lot more passion, a lot more purpose, and a lot more laughter. That's my promise. Very nice. Well, Jan, I want to thank you for being our guest tonight. It's been a wonderful episode. I very much appreciate you being on the show. Okay, let me know when I can hear it. Um, the link we sent you will be valid immediately, So, and I can send it to you again if you want. I'm good. I have the link, so I'll just tune in. Thank you, Les, for this great work you're doing in the world. Thank you. We've been talking with Jan Phillips, and the topic tonight is the title of her latest book, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. What a, what a great book. What a great soul, a persona. I knew having Jan on the show would be a delight. I, I think um, you would enjoy her book. It's a it's, uh, uh, wonderful read and you can tell from from the interview tonight that um she's she's done the work she's she's um come out the other side so to speak and there's there's kindness in her heart and compassion and um i think we're all hardwired for that and she's such a wonderful personification of just that you know if if uh if you're in a staunch religious overtones or perhaps you've had a a religious um, upbringing in your past, I wrote a book, Forgiven Sinner, God's Last Savior, and it's not a religious book, but it's 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 like a bunch of questions about God and and perhaps the role God um, plays or intends to play to the human persona. Um, forgiven sinner, God's last savior. If you're lo- if you're a recovering religious um, person or or whatnot, you might you might enjoy that. I want to uh, appreciate you, the listener. Thank you for showing up. For yourself, you've listened to this episode. You've you've uh, searched out material and conversations that help you awaken who you are. 
I want to thank you for showing up tonight. I'm your host, Les Jensen. Always a pleasure. Until next time, thanks for listening. This has been a New Human Living Radio broadcast. To bring your soul's inspiration into effect and live your life wide open. Check out our host, Les Jensen's book, Citizen King, The New Age of Power, at newhumanliving.com. Thanks for listening.